We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Uh, I got to tell you, every time that I have an opportunity to record a new back brief, it's it's refreshing. It's like, oh, wow, we're not dead yet. Uh, every day, we're one step closer to the apocalypse, it feels like. Uh, we're an inch closer to uh, a, a total nationwide shutdown, pandemic, global uh, I don't even know anymore. I, I found out on Twitter that some asteroid's going to pass within striking distance of the Earth, and its name is Apophis. At this point, we just got to make it to January, folks. Can we just get to January? Can we get to 2021 and pretend like 2020 never happened? I don't know about you guys, but I'm, I'm sick and tired of it. Uh, but unfortunately, the news cycle does go on. We all go on. So in this episode, we're talking COVID. What conversation is complete without a COVID talk? But this one is really good because it applies to you. It's about COVID and our vets because, you know, weird. We're on connecting vets. I want to talk about news that connects to you. Um, I'm also talking with Kevin Carroll a little bit later uh, about the Biden election, Trump, Biden, electoral votes. Is he or is he not the president-elect? I've heard it on both ends. We'll get to that later. But to kick the show off, I have the wonderful, the amazing Abby Bennett. Abby, thank you for being on the show again. Thank you for having me, Rod. So I, I kind of covered the, the brief overview of the apocalyptic 2020 that we currently live in. But you've got some more of that apocalyptic 2020 related to our veteran community or service members. What is going on at the VA? And um, when should I panic? When should I start storing food uh, to get me through the death winter that is upon us? Well, I wouldn't start panic buying just yet. Um, Cases are uh, increasing all across the United States. This is in no way unique necessarily to the VA and its massive healthcare system. So it's important to know that while cases are increasing at VA and have hit record levels now for about two weeks in a row, um, we're seeing roughly 11,000 active cases, which means people who are actively sick. Um, And that is much, much higher than the previous peak, which we saw in July, which was around 6,400 cases. 
So we are close to doubling the previous peak and we are right around tripling some of October's numbers for those active cases, um, which is very concerning. Um, but the good news at VA at least is that their hospitalization rates. So you, you may have an increase in the number of people who are sick, but the number of people who actually need to be hospitalized is still fairly low. The percentage of those patients has been going down the longer the pandemic has been happening. So in March, the number of sick uh, VA COVID patients who needed to be hospitalized was 38%, which is really high. Now it's been going down and down and down. So last month it was about 15%. Right now, so far in November, it's about 13%. And that is what VA is using to sort of gauge how well it's doing in the pandemic is how many people have to be in a hospital. So let me get this straight. Yeah. We, we have an increase in COVID numbers mm -hmm. at the VA, but the number of those people that require hospitalization has dropped down dramatically. Yes. So dramatic increase, but dramatic decrease mm -hmm. in hospitalizations. That hospitalizations part, and that's what the VA is saying, that's our measure for success. We mm -hmm. keep those hospital numbers down. Uh, we are being successful. What does that mean though? So we, we have less hospitalizations. Have we been able to pin down like why those hospitalizations, you know, numbers going up, hospitalizations coming down. Why? Why are, why are those two numbers so closely aligned? That is a great question. So not everybody who gets COVID gets really, really sick. You know, there is a whole spectrum of symptoms and severity of this virus. And so some people who get it can recover perfectly well at home. Um, it's not enjoyable, just like being home with flu is not enjoyable. But you know, there are lots of people who are able to recover at home and don't need medical assistance. And what has changed between March and now is we do have in some ways a better understanding, and by we, I mean the medical community and medical professionals, but they do have uh, in some ways a better understanding of the virus and also how to treat the virus. Um, and another really great thing is that because more people are tested, more people learn they have the virus earlier and more people are educated about the symptoms and know, you know, oh, maybe I should get tested. And so you're also catching cases earlier on when people are less sick um, and can be monitored, can, you know, maybe call their doctor for a teledoc appointment, learn the things that they can do at home to take care of themselves and they don't escalate to the point where they need to be hospitalized. So yes, we are seeing more cases, more cases that are asymptomatic and more cases in which people are sick to varying degrees, but we overall are doing a better job of catching it early, of treating it, and we are seeing fewer people having to stay in the hospital, which is really the greatest news, at least for on the VA side of the pandemic. And those numbers are pretty well reflected in other parts of the country, though you know, in other parts of the country, you have many, many more people sick. And so you have many, many more people who potentially need to be hospitalized. So there are parts of the country seeing, you know, a lot more people in hospitals than mm -hmm. maybe in, in July and earlier this year. But, you know, we are seeing some good news on VA side of things. Well, I can't, I can't possibly leave it at good news because I mean, it's the news. This is all about doom and gloom. So let's go back to some doom and gloom. 
Um, I know new suicide numbers came out from the VA as well. Um, those did not look good. And, and I'm hearing that there is a correlation between the suicide numbers and COVID. Uh, you know, maybe it has something to do with being shut indoors. Maybe it has something to do with our social networks being cut off from us. Uh, but what does the VA have to say? So VA normally releases an annual suicide prevention report every year. Um, often that comes out in the fall around September or October. This year it came out a little bit later. Um, VA has lots of reasons for that. Um, we're not sure quite exactly what that reason was, but either way it did come out. And the important thing to remember with VA's suicide prevention report is it's a little bit complicated. The numbers that we're seeing are actually the numbers from 2018. Um, the actual suicide death numbers, because, you know, veterans are civilians, they're not part of DOD anymore. And so it's harder sometimes to gather the data on cause of death for civilians. VA has to get that data from states and from the CDC, and that takes longer. And right now, Congress members really, really want to work with VA to make that quicker so we can get more real-time data. But we are looking at 2018 numbers in this new suicide uh, prevention report. And those numbers did go up slightly overall um, from 2017 to 2018. And that's a trend that we've been seeing for years now. Um, the numbers are either staying roughly the same or they're getting worse. A highlight though from that report is that veterans who are actually getting care at VA are seeing a decrease in suicide rate. So veterans who are getting help at VA, either through their health care or mental health help, um, it is making a big difference for them as far as those suicide prevention numbers go. One thing that was new in this report that came out this year is because we are in the middle of a pandemic and there is major concern about how that could affect suicides, VA did try to collect some data for this year. Basically, they called all of their medical centers and said, hey, do you guys know of any veterans who have died by suicide in this way? Um, and right now, VA is saying, based on what they've gathered so far, at least among the veterans they treat, they're not seeing a major increase. Wow. But it is still very, very early to tell that, you know, we will have to wait to see what the real impact is. But that is slightly encouraging news. But there is, you know, VA and lawmakers and advocates, everybody is very concerned that isolation caused by the pandemic could lead people to feel more lonely, to feel more desperate, to feel more, you know, alone in their struggle. Um, and there are lots and lots of efforts out there to try and help with that. Um, because when we feel disconnected, you know, we feel like we are, you know, by ourselves in our struggle. And that's absolutely not the case. Um, and everybody who cares about veterans or Americans overall wants them to know that there are avenues out there now, even while we are social distancing. So we're looking at numbers from two years ago, and we're still seeing an, uh, a, a, a slight climb. Uh, with COVID occurring in 2020, we're not going to get a real clear picture about what this year really looked like till 21-22 then. Yeah, worst case scenario, if there's nothing that changes in how VA is able to get, gather that data, um, then yes, you know, we may not get the full picture 
um, in a report from VA until, you know, as late as 2022. How closely aligned? How, how closely aligned are the numbers between civil uh, between service members and the veteran suicide rate? So service members, uh, on average, about roughly, very roughly, about 17 veterans die by suicide every day. Um, and then there are, um, you know, two or three service members, and that includes reserve, active duty, um, and guard. So it is a much lower rate among active duty um, percentage-wise. Um, it is a little bit better, um, but in raw numbers, I mean, obviously there are more veterans than there are people on active duty or who are serving in the Guard and Reserve. And so you would expect the daily number to be greater, um, but percentage-wise, it is a little bit better for service members. Um, but, you know, as we know, Suicide tends to be higher yeah. among, for instance, our Vietnam veteran population um, and among some of the older populations of veterans. And so that's correlation. It's not necessarily causation, um, but it is something to sort of look out for and, and may at least partially explain that difference. We are entering the holiday season, which means Capitol Hill is about to shut down. Everybody's gonna go back home to their states Everyone's going to shut down for the holidays and whatnot. Uh, what is the news on Capitol Hill uh, as it as it pertains to our veteran community uh, before everyone decides to lock doors, turn the lights off, and then come back next year? That is a great question. So as Congress winds down for the holiday, they're also winding down this congressional session. So we had an election and now Congress will start a whole new session um, that will be the um, 2020, or I'm sorry, the 2021 to 2022 session of Congress. They will uh, induct the new members of Congress and they will sort of start the legislative process all over again. What that means is that any bills that haven't passed by the end of this year will have to be reintroduced and start the process all over again. So there are a lot of veteran bills hanging out there. Um, you know, right now, Congress is about to start this week, the House and Senate um, negotiating on the National Defense Authorization Act. That is the massive uh, DOD spending and policy bill. Um, and one thing that we at Connecting Vets actually wrote about today is that uh, senators and congressmen right now are really pushing to get something included in that giant bill that would extend care for more Vietnam veterans exposed to Agent Orange. It's an amendment that would add more diseases to VA's list of what they cover for Agent Orange. Um, and that includes hypertension, or I'm sorry, it does not include hypertension. It includes Parkinson, Parkinson's um, and several other diseases that would benefit, you know, I think it's 34,000 veterans and their families, you know, something that would make a big difference and that was included in the Senate's draft of this bill, but didn't make it into the House's draft. And so now as both sides come together to sort of make one big bill together, you know, these advocates in the House and the Senate are really hoping that that measure gets included and gets passed. And they are supposed to hopefully vote on that bill um, either later this month or in December. 
And if it doesn't happen before the great shutdown or the great return back or the holiday season, then this all has to get argued again next year? Yes. So what happens for this, you know, smaller bill about VA benefits is that if it doesn't make it into the NDAA, then yes, it will have to be reintroduced as a standalone bill next year um, and hopefully pass that way. And there are plenty of bills that do that. But the thinking is that the NDAA is this massive bill that helps fund the Department of Defense and sets a lot of its policy, including things like uh, pay raises for service members. And that's a bill that has to pass. Congress has to find a way to pass it in order to continue operating the DOD the way they want to. Um, and so the goal is always to pass it by the end of the year. And so by including this bill for veterans in that, in that massive package, they're hoping that they can get it passed now. Um, and that does happen. You will see some veteran related legislation included in that big DOD package because you know, DOD and veterans issues do go hand in hand in some ways. So the hope is to get it included in that so they don't have to start from scratch. Abby Bennett, uh, thank you so much for your insight, for all the hard work you do on Capitol Hill. Where can we find out more about what you're doing? Always on connectingvets.com and you can always also find me on Twitter at Abby, A-B-B-I-E, the letter R, and Bennett, B-E-N-N-E-T-T. -T. Awesome. Thank you again so much. Folks, we're going to take a break, but when we come back, we're talking about the elections. I know you're probably sick and tired of it. Rod, I don't want to hear about the elections. I'm done with it. But I have an expert. I found somebody who is going to tell us exactly what the hell exact what the hell is actually going on here. Uh, the office of the president-elect. Is that a thing? Is that really a thing? Is he the president-elect? Uh, what about Trump's, uh, what about the president's, I shouldn't say just say Trump, what about the president's uh, right to contest in the court of law? Does he, didn't he, doesn't he get his day in court? All of that, when we return, Kevin Carroll is going to explain it to you and me because I'm a dunce. I don't know what the hell is going on. I'm as much in the dark as you are. All of that, when we return. All right, folks, uh, welcome back. I want to introduce uh, my guest today, uh, Kevin Carroll. Kevin, thanks for being on the show, man. Thanks for having me. Kevin, uh, tell these wonderful people who you are and why we should probably listen to what you have to say about these uh, the election kerfuffle, if you will. Uh, very happy to tell you who I am. They can decide for themselves if they should listen to me. Um, <clears throat> my name's Kevin. Currently, I'm a lawyer in private practice with the Wigan and Dana Law Firm. Um, before that, I did a bunch of different things in the government. Um, pertinent to this, um, I was a senior counselor to Secretary of Homeland Security, John Kelly. Um, and before that, uh, I was a CIA case officer, for example. So I, I have a little bit of insight into the, uh, and I served in a, the military as well, um, and joint staff and other places like that, as well as in, in combat. So I have a little bit of an insight as to how the intelligence community and the military uh, get a president-elect um, spun up and, and ready to take uh, take over his new duties. So let's start with the president-elect title. Is he the president-elect? Great question. Uh, I, I believe that is the proper form of address. Um, very technically speaking, 
perhaps uh, if we were in court, uh, it would be after uh, uh, the uh, states have certified uh, their electoral votes uh, or the Electoral College has met and, and uh, ratified those votes. Uh, Congress has accepted those votes. But in the, in, the, in the common term of usage, and as it's been used for the purpose of preparing the next guy in every other uh, transition, uh, he's the president-elect. You know, it, it became clear uh, several days after the election that although it was narrow, um, former Vice President Biden had won. And so I, I think as a matter of ascertainment, which is the, the, the term that the uh, GSA administrator has to use, but we can ascertain that he is the president-elect. In the past, we have had other president-elects. Have we treated them as president-elect despite the fact that states haven't ratified or, or really the states, all the states have not come forward and said, this is our official count. This is what we have. Is this something kind of, is this new that we're doing for, for, uh, for Biden or is this business as usual? So in the modern era, there's been one um, future president who hasn't been treated according to standard uh, and that's George W. Bush. And one of the findings of the 9-11 commission was that the truncated transition he had because of the litigation over the Florida recount <clears throat> kept him from fully staffing up the national security parts of, the, uh, of his administration until sometime into 2002. So legislation was passed, making it a more standardized thing um, how presidents-elect would be treated. Um, and President Obama uh, has stated that President Bush was really generous to him uh, as to the transition procedures. Um, and I, I can state as a former Trump administration appointee uh, that the Obama administration was generous to the incoming Trump administration. Um, so with the significant exception of Bush 43, Biden is being treated, uh, in my view, differently than every other president elect in the in the modern era. There are some in the early times, uh, I, I believe John Adams um, didn't attend Thomas Jefferson's inauguration. And there were some other things such as that. But in the current national security era, when you know, a missile can hit the United States in minutes, it, nobody else has been treated like this. The Trump administration has made some drastic changes. One of the biggest being recently, uh, the Secretary of Defense was fired on Twitter. Uh, a new guy, a new guy pushed in that position. A lot of folks are saying that this person uh, is not as equipped for the job. Now, from your position. Is this an unprecedented thing to fire your secretary of defense right after the elections? Where does this put the country? Is this something we should be worried about? Yes. Um, in fact, I was defending a, um, a, a preliminary hearing in a court martial yesterday. If it had been the actual court martial, I would have moved that the tribunal was not lawfully constituted as Mr. Miller is not the secretary of defense. According to, to Title 10, um, in case of the incapacity of the Senate confirmed Secretary of Defense, which is what Mr. Esper was, the Deputy Secretary of Defense becomes the acting secretary. And Mr. Miller is not that. So it's, it's absolutely extraordinarily unprecedented, arguably illegal, um, and certainly dangerous to change horses with uh, just a few weeks left with several national security uh, threat streams and situations in train. One of the things we talk about when we discuss the president's actions is that I think for most Americans, we like to think that the president is surrounded by 
very smart people. There are at least a hundred Kevin Carroll's in the room with him when he says, you know, Hey, I want to fire the secretary of defense. This guy's, I don't like the cut in his jib. Um, what are these people telling him? Should, I mean, you're telling me this is an unprecedented move, but I want to believe that there are lawyers in this room going, yeah, no, this is a good move. You should definitely do this. Unfortunately, he doesn't listen to the lawyers uh, that are around him now, um, or those lawyers don't uh, have the intestinal fortitude to, to speak up and tell a president of the United States when he's doing the wrong thing. Um, as you pointed out, uh, um, Secretary Esper was fired on Twitter. So, you know, Trump you know, could, could have done this in, in his pajamas, uh, you know, fr from bed or in the restroom, you know, <laughs> without, without advice of counsel. Um, we just don't know. And it's, it's a big problem. And in an in a ordinary White House of either party, um, there's a staff secretary uh, that's managing the flow of paper to the president. Uh, there's a general counsel with a staff that's giving a legal eye on that as well. Uh, there's a chief of staff who's managing uh, who gets into the Oval Office and whose phone calls make it into the Oval Office uh, to have some sort of orderly process, including the National Security Council process. Um, here instead, it's 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 just a fellow with 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 a phone um, who's out there flailing. What happens in the White House when the president makes a call such as firing somebody over Twitter and didn't really ask for guidance or clarification? Let's assume for a moment that the president made this decision in, in the scenario you just kind of uh, painted in pajamas or, you know, he's, you know, it, it's a morning thing. He gets up. He's like, I'm just, I'm done with this guy. Enough is enough. Uh, makes the firing on Twitter. What happens to the legal counsel? What's been happening in the white house with these lawyers who are supposed to be, you know, protecting the president. Uh, tell me, tell us a little bit about what happens in those rooms. You know, I lived through one of these experiences. Uh, I was um, the only Republican appointed lawyer in the Office of General Counsel at the Department of Homeland Security uh, when they suddenly and surprisingly dropped the original travel ban, uh, which we had not had an opportunity to read <laughs> before it was assigned and published as an executive order. We were literally in the process of reading it when the president signed it live on television. Um, and uh, it was patently illegal, uh, you know, and, and, and was enjoined by the courts and thrown out by the courts. And they had to go through three different revisions uh, before they could get a version that that stuck. And, you know, what happened there was it wasn't written or even reviewed by any lawyer. It was written by Stephen Miller and, and Stephen Bannon. Um, so when the president does one of these things, you know, without any advice of counsel, the entire government has to um, clean up his mess. Um, and uh, in the case of the travel ban, uh, it took several trips to the Supreme Court to, to, to fix it. Um, in other circumstances related to DOD, for example, um, he tweeted that transgender people couldn't be in the military, you know, regardless of the wisdom or not of, of that policy. Um, you, you can't just make a military personnel policy to kick somebody out of the service and cut off their benefits on the basis of a tweet. I mean, there, there, there has to be a, a change to Title 10 and a change to the, the Code of Federal Regulations to do these things legally. So uh, there are certain things that the president, you know, can just snap his fingers and do. You know, if he wants to take Marine One to go golf, okay, he can do that. Uh, but the idea that you can just um, take significant legal action without the advice of counsel and other key advisors 
and have it stick um, four years into this, we should see, is not the reality of the world. Let's go back a little bit to talk about the elections, because I, I feel like all of this is tied in together. We've got states right now who have not ratified their decision. They have, there are states right now that are still, quote unquote, counting. Um, the president is adamant that there is voter fraud, that he has won this election, that he can still win this election. Where, where do you sit with this concept, the idea that the president could still win this? He can't. Uh, he doesn't have any evidence of fraud that would overturn the results uh, in any of the key swing states. If vote fraud happens. Uh, I read a study recently that in the past 20 years, um, the federal government had prosecuted approximately 30 voter fraud cases. So, so it happens. You know, so that's several election cycles, several attorneys general of different, of different parties. It does happen. There's absolutely no indication that there's you know, 100,000 fraudulent votes for Biden or that you know, 100,000 votes that were lawfully cast for Trump were thrown out in Pennsylvania. And <clears throat> the rubber really hits the road uh, when you go to a, a judge and ask for a, a preliminary injunction and temporary restraining order and, and have to, to show your cards. You know, what, what's the evidence that there was voter fraud such that a judge should enjoin the state legislature, for example, from certifying a vote? And they just don't have the evidence. I think that one of the, the issues that many Republicans have had with the media declaring Joe Biden the winner is that President Trump really hasn't had time to present his evidence to to fight in the courts um, his position that some of these votes were fraudulent or that not all the votes were brought in that would have pushed him uh, over that limit to to get that state. Uh, before we call Joe Biden the president-elect, shouldn't we be allowing uh, the president and his legal team adamant time to make their cases to the to the states? I agree, but I think two weeks is adequate time <clears throat> to have made at least that initial showing. Um, and they've produced just zero evidence. I mean, I, I heard the, the president's uh, main lawyer, uh, former Mayor Giuliani, on the other day. <clears throat> and his evidence that he presented was that the uh, company that provides the voting machines in some jurisdictions um, employs former Democratic staffers. And, and former Republican staffers as well. I mean, that's just not evidence of vote fraud. You know, it's Mr. Mayor, that's the best you got. You know, they, uh, they just, they've had a couple weeks. Um, interestingly, they've had some serious law firms involved who have withdrawn from the representation because uh, you, know, you, you don't want to get in ethical trouble by embarrassing yourself in front of the judge by making false uh, or baseless specious statements. So uh, I, I think there's just no there there. I, I, I don't doubt that in an election where 150 million votes were cast, there were some um, fraudulent votes. That, that, that's uh, j just the way of the world. But there's nothing, there's no evidence of anything along the lines of hundreds of thousands of fraudulent votes uh, or illegally suppressed votes in the key swing states. You and I originally met over an interview about martial law, uh, Posse Comitatus Act, uh, and at the time, we were in the middle of the George Floyd-related uh, protests that turned in some places 
into riots. Uh, we were talking about the uh, the use of National Guard troops on the ground, and it kind of bled over into the election because we had National Guard troops on ready, on standby, ready to act in the event of uh, insurrection or in the event that people would start rioting. Now we have Joe Biden. He is being, uh, I, I hate to say, you know, touted, but he is the president-elect according to the media. Um, we'll, we'll wait till those results come in and he is the official president-elect. Um, but nevertheless, recently we just had a march here in Washington, uh, the Make America Great Again March, the MAGA Millions or something like that. <laughs> but nevertheless, the people seem, the American people, seem more and more ready to take to the streets. Now, albeit this, this, uh, the MAGA march was very peaceful. I think there were a couple of disruptions that we can actually point to folks showing up to cause trouble. But we do see more and more people standing up and, and making, uh, making a stand. Now, the world kind of, we all kind of held our breath election night. Everybody was waiting for the hammer to drop and we're like, oh, please don't. But I have been saying for a while now, it is not then, it's soon. This is the, this is the, the scary period for me, that everything's in the air. We, you know, the left has celebrated uh, Joe Biden's victory that is not official. And the right has seemed to get very angry about the left celebration um, everyone is still trying to, to, to push the, the agenda that, well, I should say the right is trying to push the agenda that this is not over. There is no victor yet. Where do we stand on the potential for violence? Is there, are we out of the woods or are we just getting into it? Where do we stand with the national guard? What could this, could this whole thing just still blow up in our face? I agree with you. So I, I share the exact words and, um, you know, protest is, is lawful. You know, it's, it's perfectly fine for people to, to go to the streets and wave a sign and, and chant and bang a drum. Um, what's not okay is, is what happened in Washington on, on Saturday night, where, where after the demonstration, um, you had someone stabbed, for example. And uh, I, I, I think that was a anti-Trump person that stabbed a Trump person, I believe. I'm not sure. And there have been <clears throat> examples of violence on, on both sides. Um, and the violence is never acceptable. Um, I'm worried too. I mean, there was the, the extremely concerning statement by the president in the, the, the first debate about the Proud Boys, which is a neo-fascist uh, white supremacist organization that they should uh, st stand back and stand by uh, related to the election results. And uh, the president uh, and his uh, son said some extremely irresponsible things, uh, calling for violence in the streets, uh, uh, calling for total war. Those are actually the words that they used. So there's, there, there's irresponsible people uh, with Twitter accounts um, that, that could very well um, turn peaceful demonstrations into something violent, requiring a, a governor to call out the National Guard. And as, as I think you and I both agree, uh, while it's lawful to involve the military and law enforcement activities uh, in certain circumstances, it's not ideal. It's, it's something we want to avoid if we can. Uh, there's wonderful federal, state, and local law enforcement that trained at great length uh, to do things like crowd control. I, I grew up in New York City. The NYPD are wonderful at, at peaceful crowd control. There's always a demonstration going on somewhere in New York City. You form up in one park, they block off some streets, you walk to the next park. Everything's fine. 
um, leave, leave it to the cops. We, we, we don't want GIs getting involved. Let's assume for a moment, Biden is the president-elect. It's inauguration day. Does the president show up? Do you think the president is going to hand over the reins of the country to Sleepy Joe, to the guy that he has dragged through the mud, openly talked, uh, and honestly, Hunter Biden kind of dug his own hole, to be, let's be honest, that the man is the man, he does what he does, uh, he's a grown-ass man, uh, but the, the president really didn't have to try very hard to drag Hunter Biden through the mud, but nevertheless, this is the guy's kid. Um, I, a lot of people are curious, will the president show up? Will he hand the, the keys over to, uh, to, to Joe Biden? What are your thoughts? I don't think he will. I mean, he's, he, he's not a personally gracious or well-mannered man, just to say no more. Um, there's no requirement for him to be at the ceremony. Right? Um, we've had some different kinds of inaugurations in the past. When I was a kid, I remember uh, Reagan's second inauguration was a small ceremony indoors because there was extreme bitter cold in Washington, D.C. that day. Uh, and a, the crowd would all got frostbite. Um, in 1945, for FDR's fourth inaugural, he was pretty ill at that point, which was being hidden from the public. He actually didn't even give his own inaugural address. He gave it to Fleet Admiral Leahy to, to deliver his inaugural address. So it was just a very small reception in the White House. Especially because of COVID, I think we may see something like that. Biden may say, um, I don't want to have a non-socially distanced gathering. Um, we'll just do this in a small way, and, and President Trump will, will absent himself. Um, you know, for example, uh, I mean, just we have two sort of reference points. Um, he was not invited uh, to John McCain's funeral because they thought that, that it might be disruptive. He did go to President Bush 41's funeral, and he sort of sat there with his arms folded, scowling the, the entire time. It's just not his thing to um, uh, uh, act uh, like... Uh, a dignified gentleman on occasion such as this. Going forward, um, the president has put out that, you know, 2024, he will be back. Um, is, is this an unprecedented move? I don't think I've ever seen another, have other presidents done this, you know, did their thing, took a break, come back. Uh, and what does this mean for uh, the Republicans. Is this something that you think the Republican Party is going to support? There are a lot of other contenders out there. There are a lot of other uh, presidential candidates that the GOP has been looking at in the event that the president loses this election. Um, I don't think many people were thinking he would even suggest the notion of a 2024 run. Take us through your thoughts, Mr. Carroll. So it, it's certainly legal, and it's been done once before. Uh, Grover Cleveland served uh, two non-consecutive terms back in the, the 19th century. So even with the way the Constitution has been amended since, there, there's, there's no legal bar to, to President Trump running again. Um, had he been um, convicted after his impeachment, uh, he would have been constitutionally barred from any federal office. But, th but that didn't happen. So I'm almost certain that he's going to declare that he's a candidate for 2024. Uh, he declared his 2020 candidacy the day after he was inaugurated in, in 2017, I believe. Um, it gives him the ability to raise money. Um, so I, I think he'll certainly do it. He enjoys campaigning. He's, he's not much for, for governing or, or, or some of the other aspects of the office, but he really enjoys those rallies. Do you think um, the GOP is going to support this? Do you think the GOP is going to jump on board and be like, yeah, 2024, Trump, let's do this thing? 
I think it's a terrible idea, and I think they will. I, w- I was speaking to a, a, a person last night who has pretty direct insight into the thoughts of, of senior GOP leaders. And um, he doesn't like President Trump, but he said he was able to, to get 70 million votes, even despite everything that's going on. Um, down ballot Republicans running for senator, congressman, governor um, want to be seen as on his side um, for fear of um, angering the GOP base. So he'll run again and they'll likely support him again. I saw Governor Baker of Massachusetts and uh, Governor Hogan of Maryland have made some noises about running. I would enthusiastically support either of those candidacies you know, as, as opposed to um, going through Donald Trump again. Um, but we'll, we'll see what happened. I, I keep waiting for the congressional GOP to um, show some signs of wanting to get daylight from President Trump. And it just hasn't happened yet. Mr. Carroll, where do we go from here? We have the president-elect. We have the the final votes coming in. We have a president who seems uh, bent on not relinquishing power a moment early. Um, and we have 2024 looming in the next four years. Uh, what, give us your synopsis. Where do we go from here, Kevin? I, I wish I had a, a cheerful um, forecast, but I don't. Um, there's a lot of legal issues hanging over President Trump's head, which are, are going to sort of come into focus once he's out of office and can no longer claim certain immunities and privileges. Um, there's the uh, investigation by the district attorney in Manhattan into um, tax and other frauds. There's an investigation by the New York State Attorney General into tax frauds, which could turn criminal. Um, many people believe there's a sealed federal indictment waiting for him in the Southern District of New York over um, frauds and conspiracies related to paying off Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. Um, there are several uh, defamation suits related to um, his alleged rapes and sexual assaults. Um, these are all gonna be coming uh, into the fore um, in addition to several congressional investigations which have been stymied. So as much as I'm sure a President Biden after January 20th We'll just want Trump in the rearview mirror and just go about trying to execute his agenda. I think it's going to be a split screen for a couple of years of what's happening in Washington D.C. and what's happening in the New York, uh, the New York State courts, for example. I would be remiss if I didn't ask about how this influences or how this is going to affect uh, military service members and the veterans all across the world. Um, there's a lot of instability going on, especially with the Secretary of Defense being fired. What does all of this mean for service members or uh, uh, the, 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 the civilian community that is part of the DOD, that's part of our intelligence infrastructure? What does all this mean for them? Great question. Um, you know, uh, we saw in, in this morning's New York Times that the, the president considered a, a strike on Iran um, in these, these closing days of the administration. Uh, uh, which would have been yet another Middle East war, which obviously impacts people quite directly. Um, it, it looks as if the president tried to get to zero in, in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, and, and Somalia and some other places. That's probably not going to happen. Um, so it's not as much of a change as it, as it might have been. Um, you know, Joe Biden, and I, I'm a Republican uh, who voted for Joe Biden. Uh, Joe Biden throughout his career um, has been kind of dovish. You know, I, I would be surprised if Joe Biden um, was going to back a greatly increased defense budgets or um, additional military actions abroad. 
that were discretionary. Um, you know, that said, you know, his sons served, including his son, Bo, who, who passed away, served, served in Iraq. So I think he's got a soft spot in his heart for veterans. I, I think the, the Veterans Administration will be well-funded um, and he'll care about issues like post-traumatic stress and traumatic uh, brain disorder, um, a traumatic brain injury, I should say. Um, so I, 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 let's hope, you know, just you know, as Americans and as, as, as veterans and former service members, um, uh, that it will be peaceful. Um, and that there'll be an emphasis on on, on patching up guys and girls uh, that, that need some help uh, after the past 19 years of war. Kevin, thank you so much for being on the show. I uh, always appreciate your insight. Very few people have the experience that you have to speak from. Um, you know, I, I will say all politics aside, um, one of the things that I've strived to do on the show is talk to people on both ends of the spectrum. Uh, I think it's very interesting that you're a Republican who voted for Biden. Um, I'm sure that you've lost some friends, <laughs> um, but it, it is what it is, is the world that we're living in. So uh, again, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate you. If there's a, where can people find out more about you or find out your 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 uh, professional writings and, and thoughts? Oh, yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, listen, it's always a pleasure being on. I, I enjoy talking to you very much uh, and, and, and your, your, your guests. Um, uh, LinkedIn, look me up on LinkedIn. Ke Kevin Carroll, I'm at the, the Wigan and Dana Law Firm. I keep all the, uh, all the stuff that I write for the Washington Examiner and other places uh, up there. And uh, happy to talk to folks anytime, especially you. Thanks, man. And we'll make sure we put a link to your LinkedIn in the show notes. Folks, that does it for me. This was The Back Brief. I'm Rod Rodriguez. You can always find us at ConnectingVets.com. We also have some amazing podcasts like Vet Story, uh, CBS Eye on Veterans. You can, of course, read all of our amazing articles. There are news articles related to veterans. They're about you folks. So don't sleep on this stuff. This is your world. Information is power. Stay informed. I'm Rod Rodriguez, and I'll see you at the next episode. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.